So this afternoon, as I was preparing the talk, I spent about two hours working on a talk that you're not going to hear. <laughs> it was quite a process, and it, was a, it led me to an interesting place and to the subject for tonight's talk. Because, you know, I kept wondering, I was just struggling and, and kind of looking at the um, kind of feeling that I had. And, it, you know, it was almost as if what I really wanted to do was to curl up in a ball and just breathe. <laughs> and I thought, well, can I make a Dharma talk of that? <laughs> and it was sort of, I had the feeling as if whatever I talked about had to feel as close as the breath. That if it felt like it was in some way something out there external, I wouldn't be able to do it. And so what I'm talking about tonight is something that doesn't, um, well, anyhow, it's lessons from nature. It's about, it, for me in my own life, I felt like nature was my first teacher. Nature was where I discovered the Dharma. And that was before I knew the words of the Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha. It was what I felt like as a child was where I could go for solitude, solace. It was where life made sense. And it was through the seeing of nature in its different, different configurations, the different ways that it touched me, both externally and internally, that there was some sense of possibility. There was some touching of a mind that was stilled in the midst of change, in the midst of a lot going on. It was, ah, it has certainly been what has held and supported me through all of the different looking, inquiring. You know, it's still a place that I often go to to practice and has helped me in so many ways. In um, the Thai language, the word for nature, when it's translated, gets translated as entering into the Dhamma. And it's really that in, through nature, we enter into the Dhamma. And as human beings, we have the potential not just to see, to observe, but to really to come to understand nature. And so, you know, the lessons that we learn can be, you know, if we have our eyes open our, and our hearing and smelling, tasting, touching, just alive in the world around us, the lessons, the teachings on nature are everywhere. And certainly for me, one aspect of, of nature being such a strong support has been through really observing in a very impersonal way something like impermanence, something you know, as simple as change, and just seeing that you know, the change doesn't happen because we failed in some way, you know, if we've been having a pleasant, pleasing experience and really have uh, 
felt nourished by it and then suddenly conditions change, it isn't because we did something wrong. It's because impermanence is a truth of life, a fact of life. And certainly for me, the seeing of it in nature has helped me to see it in an impersonal way in my own experience. We see the truths in the outer world and we learn to apply to see these same truths within this mind-body experience. For me, this has been really helpful in kind of dissolving boundaries of separation, of feeling different, of having a sense of standing apart. And, you know, that those feelings have probably been stronger for me being amidst people, gatherings, um, in relationship, whereas being in nature, there was more of a sense of being at home. You know, that could have been one of its greatest lessons to me, to learn to be at home in myself. And then it's really been through having that place where it is more easeful that I've been able to then move into more complex environments, into relating, relationship, and to really look at how those walls of separation, alienation, come back, come into being. And then through that ease of having been in the natural world, looking to that same sense of ease in relationship. This lineage of the Buddha's teachings has often used nature as a support to practice and to gain the lessons from nature. Ajahn Buddha Dasa, uh, he would often tell his students to let the forest teach you. Now this is where we, we look to the ways of nature to gain understanding of this heart, this body, this mind. He was also um, once asked how Westerners who who tend to come to practice with deep inner wounds, pain, and self-hatred can best approach practice. And he responded by saying, First, their whole spiritual practice should be enveloped by the principles of loving-kindness. And then they should be taken out into nature, into beautiful forests or mountains. And they must stay there long enough to realize that they too are a part of nature. They must rest there until they too can feel harmony with all life and their proper place amidst all things. So the practice that we're doing here is not to perfect meditation as such, but to allow the lessons that come from observing, seeing, being with, 
nature as it's unfolding, both externally and internally, to allow this to find, help us find peace and harmony with the way of nature, and to help us find our proper place amidst all things. In speaking about nature, I don't want to romanticize it, um, to make it something sentimental, poetic, uh, because that really has a way of leading to further alienation. Uh, And uh, if we're not careful, we might live in a way that is described by Wendell Berry in his poem called The Vacation. Once there was a man who filmed his vacation. He went flying down the river in his boat with his video camera to his eye, making a moving picture of the moving river upon which his sleek boat moved swiftly toward the end of his vacation. He showed his vacation to his camera, which pictured it, preserving it forever. The river, the trees, the sky, the light, the bow of his rushing boat, behind which he stood with his camera, preserving his vacation even as he was having it, so that after he had it, he would still have it. It would be there, with the flick of a switch. There it would be, but he would not be in it. He would never be in it. And we find with nature that it seems so beautiful when we see it in postcards, when we view it through a double pane, pane, glass pane, where we view it through a warm interior that's heated, when outside it might be cold and brisk, that then it seems very, very beautiful you know, to sit on one of these crisp autumn days in your room, gazing outside at the changing colors. It can seem so beautiful. And yet, when we step out into nature, the experience of it, the being part of it, is very, very different. You know, from feeling the cold, the chill of the wind, to, you know, if there's bugs that are biting. You know, just yesterday I came back from a walk in nature, and, and you know, sure enough, there was a little tick as a reminder of my trip. Um, you know, that when we really step out into it, it can have quite harsh lessons. It can be very confronting. It can show us patterns in our mind. You know, that it can show us patterns of fear, you know, a, a way of relating when we feel challenged, unsafe. You know, walking through the woods and hearing, you know, a, a loud, unfamiliar sound. What is it? The woods around here aren't quite so dangerous, but they still can have dangers. And, you know, but what we can learn from is the patterning around what comes up in the mind. This is very well known within the Thai forest tradition, where, you know, 
in that tradition, they actually go out into the jungle and practice. They go into environments that don't have a, a level of safety that we might experience in practice, practicing here in the forest refuge. And um, Like I really jumped ahead of myself here. <laughs> um, one of the great Thai forest ma- masters, Ajahn Man, uh, he, he was somebody who in his life at one point was really interested in, in the teachings of the Buddha, but couldn't find a teacher in his life. So he decided he would go out into the forest and uh, he would let the forest teach him in the same way that the Buddha had. And so, you know, he um, spent many years there, and he said he was going to the wilderness not to conform to the ways of nature, as that is samsara, but to break through to the truths that would transcend them entirely. So going, you know, not just to to feel, to on one level to see nature moving through him, but to lead him to a deep understanding of this nature. And he, he also recognized that one needed wilderness survival skills in the physical world, but we also need these same skills in looking into the inner terrain, working with the inner demons, looking into our own inner lives. But these survival skills that we learn in the world can really help us in the inner terrain. Now, this is something I've found so true in my own life, that you know, in my earlier days of being into the outdoors and facing a lot of fear. You know, facing fear, I I did a lot of climbing, and I was afraid of heights. And yet through the facing of the fear, it was still possible to climb mountains. And, you know, within that, there was great learning. It wasn't just like, oh, face the fear and climb the mountain. It was like get paralyzed by the fear and find your way out of it. And that happened on the midst of, you know, climbing this cliff face. And, you know, climbing up, becoming paralyzed by fear, unable to move, looking down, (laughs) feeling like, oh, death, this could be a certainty. And knowing the only thing to do was to overcome the fear, the paralysis in the mind, and move on. And that training was what recently helped me in the Himalayas when I was walking. And there was at times every day moments where there was unsure footing, moments when uh, that the mind could have tripped out on fear. And knowing that to indulge in that fear would only 
bring one closer to what the mind was fearful of, you know, falling, uh, you know, to that, that there was no room to let the thoughts of that fear accelerate. It needed to, to know fear, but not to be run by fear. And it took, it took all of my training from, you know, the many, many ways that I've had to face fear to keep going and to keep moving step by step. And with, with that, it's not a denying of the fear. It's not denying of what the message of fear may be, but it's not an indulging in that. And I wanted to share tonight um, a story that comes from one of Ajahn Mun's disciples, whose name was Tat. And Tet was 34 years old at the time that this story happened. And he had, for many years, wandered about in the jungle and had many times heard tigers growl. But on this particular night, he was in a hut on the edge of a village, and he heard a tiger growl. And there was immense fear that arose in his mind. And so this is what he says. I sat down to meditate, but my mind wouldn't focus. At the time, I did not know the mind was terrified of the tiger. My body sweated so much that the perspiration streamed down. Why all the sweating when it was so cold? I spread the robe and kept covered, but the body was trembling. The mind was too exhausted to meditate. And when I was about to recline, the tiger roared again. And I was shaking as if I had jungle fever. Only then did I realize that the mind refused to focus out of sheer fright. Immediately I sat up and cajoled my mind to have courage to face death if it came. Then the mind became calm. And at times when hearing the tiger again, my mind simply ignored its roar, like the wind making contact with an object. It's just noise. Really having to face whatever comes. And sometimes we don't want to face what's coming because of the fear of death. But when we face that fear, the mind becomes calm, steadfast, tranquil, regardless of what the outcome will be. It helps us to totally face this moment. Ajahn Mun said, to the untrained mind, the roar of the tiger will be overwhelming. To the person who has the desire to be free of suffering, they will use it as an opportunity to turn to the Dharma or greater truth. He also said there comes a critical point when strong concentration develops in order to face our fears and then 
further insight will arise. He believed that it was good fortune for a monk to hear the growl of a tiger. For the ordinary mind, the response would be fear. For the noble one, it is simply sound. So we use our experiences in nature as a means to support and deepen our understanding. Being out in nature, it gives support by bringing a heightened awareness. And a lot of it is through this sense of survival. That uh, one, if one spends time out in nature, realizes that if you become disconnected, well, just disconnected to start with, you can easily become lost. Disconnected, you might not be aware of danger approaching that by having a heightened sense of awareness, it helps one to be present and able to respond accordingly. This heightened awareness, it's not that we want to become dependent upon intense states of mind to have this awareness. What we want to watch is not to become disconnected. And what this translates into is into presence, being present in nature. Just walking in the forest around here. There's, you know, every now and then you come across a grove of big trees. You know, these are really the elders. And just standing in their presence, one becomes present. It's using the support of the natural world to allow the mind to rest and to be. And we find that this naturally happens in moments in nature where we may have a moment of awe, wonder. Now, I remember once being at Niagara Falls and being in that little boat that you take and you go right up to the bottom of the falls. And, you know, the the force of these falls is truly awesome. And then to be at the bottom where this, you know, this water is just pounding down and be enveloped by the mist was just such a powerful experience, the mind just was awed into silence, into stillness, and no sense of separation. Or sometimes, you know, looking, I remember being on the top of a mountain, and it was uh, at the time when the sun was setting, 
and there was just these beautiful colors. And you know, it was the beauty that was that was stunning in that moment. And and then being taken by surprise when I turned around and there was a full moon rising. And was just, you know, all of the sense doors being opened, not being followed or grasped at, but it was just the being stilled. The mind was stilled with the sense doors being opened. And with that, again, you know, that, that sense of not standing apart from, which on one level, to me has been very instructive around the sense of relaxation and acceptance. Yes, it's easier when, you know, it's a beautiful sunset, when it's, uh, you know, something that's easy to open to, relax, and receive. But the same is true for all aspects of experience. You know, that we can have, you know, like clouds of anger come through the mind, clouds of confusion. And there can still be this same quality of relaxation and acceptance in the mind. I'd like to share a poem from a monk named Han Shan Te Ching. He was a 15th century Chinese monk. Resting at my open window, I gaze out at mountains. A thousand peaks of blue and purple rise above the pines without a thought or care. White clouds come and go, so utterly accepting, so totally relaxed. Seeing if we can be so utterly accepting, so totally relaxed, as these great waves of emotions, thoughts, stories come through the mind, learning to relax and let be. having a sense of listening, receiving. It takes the mind at times into that timelessness. I remember being out in the desert, the desert um, at night, and just the stars overhead, massive, the sense of vastness, so profound. And the silence in the desert, it was like a roar. It was so strong. I mean, it's hard to, you know, silence and roar, they don't kind of go together. But that was the sense of it. And it was so, it was as if it was just pulsating so strong. And the only thing to do was to let it be to be in it. And this vastness that holds us, that we are a part of, 
There's a line from a song um, that many years ago I heard, and it actually was a time when I was spending a lot of time in the desert. And the line is something to the effect of, all we are is dust in the wind. And I found such comfort in that because it helped me to put down the sense of having to be something, having to become something, and just being this speck of dust amidst it all. Inner and outer. The lessons of impermanence filter through moment by moment out in nature. Something as simple as the falling of a leaf, budding of a flower, just the changing weather patterns. evidence of change all around us. How can we possibly think that we are different? That somehow what we're experiencing could be permanent? That our bodies will never grow old? teaching from the Vasudhimagga, which is um, one of the commentaries and actually can be seen as a manual for practice. There is, um, you know, this is listed in the ascetic practices. um, And when the tender leaves are seen, bright red at first, then turning green, and then to yellow as they fall, one sheds belief once and for all in permanence. No wise man will disdain it for contemplating rise and fall. You know, just this changing autumn that we've been through. Letting it teach us, touch us. Within nature, we find both aspects of radical change and gradual change. And this was very evident to me when I was um, in the desert. And, you know, I love it because it's such an ancient land where uh, being in the, uh, the parks, 
in this country. You know, there's a lot of signs about what's transpired. And, you know, the events are spoken about in millions of years. Um, so, you know, it's given, time is just given this big space. And in being in the desert, it was like looking at this area that was once the bottom of an ocean. And then radical change happened, and it was thrust upward and became a mountain, and then was slowly eroding. And in some places, that change was so gradual, and yet one could see it happening in just these layers of what had been rock breaking down into particles of dust. I don't know if you've ever been to Bryce Canyon, but it's so, it's so fragile. I mean, you take a step off the path and you see the effect. The earth is no longer the same. It's just so vivid and evident. A wind blows and you just pull the dust that flies. I found it, you know, a very helpful um, way of looking at my own practice. That, you know, that sometimes we see change happening in a way that we feel, oh yeah, really getting it now, really seeing things now. It's pretty radical. We see it, and other times it's so gradual. It's like seeing these habits of mind and just watching them fall apart, thought by thought. And, you know, this is just how it happens. You know, that sometimes it's radical and sometimes it's gradual. And this is just in accordance with the way things are. Through nature, we see of the uncontrollability you know, we know like these forces of nature, the wind, you know, a hurricane. It's like a tremendous force. And it cannot be controlled. The ocean. I lived by the ocean once, and I could not believe how sometimes I'd get up in the morning and all the sand from the beach was gone. It would be bare rock that was exposed. A few weeks later, that beach might be back. You know, it just was this force that was unstoppable. And yet, so often, we try to live trying to defy the laws of nature, the laws of aging. So, so much energy gets put into trying to defy that which is natural. We're far better off to put our energy and our effort into the understanding that helps us to be at peace and at ease with the way things are than trying to defy
I love to see in nature the effect of different conditions. And again, the desert comes to mind. Just looking out over uh, an area of the desert, and you see that where sun is present to a certain degree, where water is present, whether the soil has nutrients, life will grow. And it will be in little pockets. But, you know, it can be just one little pocket where you know, a, a very fragile flower grows out of a crack in a wall. And the conditions just came together to allow that. And to see in our lives that there's a blend of many conditions coming together. And it's very impersonal. It's nature unfolding. This body is made up of the elements. Uh, I love a description from Gil Fronsdale, a teacher um, over on the West Coast, where he talks about the body being made up of uh, recycled material. (laughs) You know, this body was really born of the elements of nature. And it's subject to those same laws. Or if we've got just a a wave of indigestion moving through the belly. You know, it's just a a wave on the ocean. It's just, you know, nature doing its thing. How do we relate to it? Do we define ourselves by it? In nature, we can see the interconnectedness, just the microsystems that give rise to community, organisms living together, dependent upon each other. You know, this vast network of life. A very interdependent connected system. I'd like to share a teaching from Thich Nhat Hanh, talking about this interdependence. Just as a piece of paper is the fruit, the combination of many elements that can be called non-paper elements, The individual is made of non-individual elements. If you are a poet, you will see clearly that there is a cloud floating in the sheet of paper. Without a cloud, there will be no water. Without water, the trees cannot grow. And without trees, you cannot make paper. You cannot point to one thing that does not have a relationship with this piece of paper. It has been made by all of the non-self elements, non-paper elements, And if all these non-paper elements are taken out, it is truly empty, empty of an independent self. Empty in this sense means that the paper is full of everything, the entire cosmos. 
The presence of this tiny sheet of paper proves the presence of the whole cosmos. In the same way, the individual is made of non-individual elements. In nature, we find, um, I don't know, there's sometimes wonderful stories of, you know, animals looking out for other animals, having that sense of interconnectedness. And a couple of stories. Um, One is about after a, a tsunami, there was this baby hippopotamus that lost its mother. And so it sought out a surrogate mother, and it found one. It found a surrogate mother in a hundred-year-old tortoise, male tortoise. And these two bonded, and um, they would swim together, they would eat together, and they would sleep together. And the male tortoise seemed to be very happy in its new role as a mother to a four-year-old hippopotamus. Another story that comes from the tsunami um, was in Thailand, where there was a a, uh, working elephant. And a half an hour before the tsunami struck, the elephant sounded out a warning. And then, with his trunk, collected people and took them to higher ground. And just to me is around when we live our lives with this sense of interconnectedness. We don't separate from other beings as being other than. They are a part of. And there is a looking to the whole rather than a part. So, with nature, we can use it as a support. The Buddha spoke about it as being a place to practice. The Buddha, in his life, was before he was a Buddha, he was born out in the open under a tree. Um, He practiced out in nature. He, was, he realized full awakening sitting under a tree and then continued to practice under trees out in nature and um, said, I resort to forest as one of the noble ones possessed of wisdom. I found great solace in dwelling in the forest. It is because I see two benefits that I still resort to the forest. 
I see a pleasant abiding for myself here and now, and I have compassion for future generations. There are these, these trees and the roots of trees. Meditate. Do not be negligent, lest you regret it later. It is said in the commentaries what the Buddha meant when he said, I have compassion for future generations, was that later generations, in seeing that the Buddha resorted to forest dwellings, would follow his example and thus hasten their progress towards making an end of suffering. So the Buddha really saw nature as a place to practice, a support to practice. And it's something, you know, here we are, we're practicing at the forest refuge. We are surrounded by forest. We are surrounded by the lessons from nature. Sometimes we may go out and sit in the forest, walk in the forest. Sometimes we'll just face the forest, the wilderness, within our own hearts and minds. But wherever we practice, the lessons are the same. I'd like to end tonight with um, something from Bhikkhu Nyanasobhana's book, Landscapes of Wonder. And he is a monk who speaks so eloquently about uh, nature, the lessons from nature. And it's quite a wonderful book. Um, So this is what he says. Impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, non-self. First we read the message in characters of ink or stone or earth. And then we see through them, know through them, uh, know them, know through them toward the radiant reality beyond all places. Um, There is no need to run after the marvelous, the plain scene of any moment being fruitful enough when we walk the good path of the Dharma through city or country. We should not despise the light on chrome or the rust trailing down from a nail in a wall any more than a budding wildflower. Truth shows all facets of nature. To perceive what is needful, we have nothing but these frail senses, that, but they are sufficient if we direct them wisely. Then we have reason for faith. The river will flow on, the deer may live and prosper, and the ducks may fly out of the valley at last. Let's just sit for a moment. this mind and this body, a part of nature. Becoming at ease, at peace, 
with the laws of nature and the discovery of the nature of this mind. To find our proper place amidst all things. So closing with the chanting of the reflections on the sharing of blessings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.